Um, well, welcome. Uh, welcome to the first of a series of webinars organized by ZN and the uh, Financial Services Club looking at financial centers. And uh, today we're looking at a focus on London. Uh, we're planning to run for about half an hour. There should be time for some questions towards the end of the session. And there is a, a dashboard to the right of your screen uh, and a, a tab for questions. And you can type your questions in um, and we'll pick those up. Uh, later on in the um, in, in the webinar, uh, in the chat I've posted some links to the uh, Global Financial Centres Index and the Global Green Finance Index, uh, and also there's handouts available uh, with the slides for this uh, presentation uh, and the two reports uh, we published last week on the General fin <coughs> Global Financial Centres Index 27 and Global Green Finance Index 5. Our panel today um, is me, Mike Wardle, Head of Indices for ZN Group, uh, Professor Michael Manelli, our Executive Chairman, uh, Simon Mills, who works with us in particular on sustainable and green finance. And our agenda for today uh, sit out here. Um, we'll talk about the Global Financial Centres Index um, and the Global Green Finance Index, and in particular London's positioning in both of those measures and then pick up on three particular issues, uh, Brexit, uh, COP26, and the current pandemic. Um, and finally, um, finish off by giving uh, a few thoughts on where the Financial Services Club uh, is going at the moment. So turning to the Global Financial Centers Index 27, we published uh, the 27th edition of the index last week. Most of the leading centers in the index uh, fell in the ratings for the GFCI, as you can see uh, on the slide. Um, London held on to second place in the index following uh, New York, um, although there, there's some pressure on that positioning. Uh, Tokyo moves up into third place, and Geneva, Edinburgh, and Luxembourg all performed well in this uh, leading group. We also published for the second time FinTech ratings as part of the GFCI. They show all the uh, leading centers for FinTech really are also leading centers in the index with a couple of exceptions. Vilnius has got in uh, as a new entrance to the index, but 13th place on FinTech. Uh, Asia Pacific centers are doing well on FinTech. And I'd just like to mention that we're developing um, further our Smart Centers Index which looks at cities as centers for innovation, technology, and science. So going beyond just um, financial. Um, please do get in touch with us at any point if you're interested in the Smart Centers Index and what we're doing on the technology side. Turning to the Global Green Finance Index headlines, uh, we measure two uh, things in the GGF5. First of all, the depth of green finance in centers, and secondly, quality. Um, Western Europe dominates both of those uh, rankings. And in the depth rankings, we'll see here London uh, comes sixth uh, in the rankings. And there hasn't been a great deal of change uh, at the top of the table, except Vienna has jumped up uh, and Geneva have jumped up in this edition. Um, London, I should say, is the only city that features in both the top 10 for the Global Financial Centers Index and for the Global Green Finance Index. On green finance quality, London held onto its number one position in the rankings, um, but is under some pressure from competitors, and I'll come on to that later. 
So going to London's position in the Global Financial Centers Index, the main thing to note here is that London's rating has dropped sharply uh, in recent editions, rating at 794 out of 1,000 uh, back at GFCI 23rd edition, um, and now two years later down to a ranking of 742. Uh, so dropping reasonably quickly. And as I said, most of the leading centers have dropped uh, in the GFCI in this edition. The number of assessments given by finance professionals from other parts of the world has held up, um, but the average assessment has also dropped. Um, and these are warning measures, I guess, for London uh, looking ahead um, and thinking about how its reputation uh, and performance can hold up. On the instrumental factors, which are the quantitative measures which uh, underpin the GFCI, um, the quantitative, <coughs> London's average rank has fallen uh, slightly and gradually. Uh, this is more worrying for the medium term. It suggests there are some structural issues um, in London's performance which need some attention. We produced two sub-indices for the GFCI, one based on uh, industry sector, the other based on areas of competitiveness. On the first, we see that London's position as ranked by people working in different sectors um, is not as good for banking, investment management and insurance as it is for its overall rank in the GFCI. Um, on areas of competitiveness, London ranks consistently at second, uh, but there are some uh, questions about whether people working in banking, investment management and insurance uh, rate London as highly they might. Looking briefly at the leading centres in Western Europe, um, there's competition for London. You'll see the uh, graph at the bottom. And if we extrapolate the straight line trend of ratings um, for uh, the GFCI, London could be overtaken by Geneva by the next edition of the GFCI in September and by Frankfurt, Zurich and Paris by March. Uh, next year. So obviously ratings don't move in straight lines, um, but this is a sign, I guess, of the competition uh, at the top of the index um, and the risk there is to London given its recent fall in ratings. Turning to the Global Green Finance Index, um, the two ranks are shown here over time for London. Um, in terms of depth, uh, London started well, but has dropped down and now stabilized at sixth in the rankings. On quality, it's been number one um, through each edition of the Global Green Finance Index. In terms of rating, um, London's rating has improved over time, but then that is uh, true for almost all the centers in the Global Green Finance Index. And again, looking at the instrumental factors, London's average instrumental factor rank uh, has fallen. London may need to focus on some key measures such as its business environment rankings, and levels of green bond issuance, um, where it is uh, scoring lower than main competitor centers. Again, we produce sub-indices for the uh, Global Green Finance Index. Um, and we see this in the knowledge sector for depth and the banking sector for quality, London is perceived ranking lower than in the overall index. Uh, the knowledge sector is people working in academia, academia uh, and research. Um, so there's messages there suggesting that uh, London needs to 
think about its positioning uh, on green finance. In terms of Western Europe, Western Europe dominates the Global Green Finance Index at the top of the tables. Um, but again, if we look at the straight line trends um, over the next period, uh, London's position uh, on quality as top of the rankings uh, is under threat. On a straight line trend, London would lose out to Amsterdam and Zurich over the next six months uh, and could lose its first place ranking. We want to turn to some key issues that are facing London and indeed others. Uh, Brexit, the hosting of COP26, uh, and indeed the current pandemic, and just do some thinking about how these issues uh, may affect London uh, going forward. First of all, on Brexit, uh, we've already seen an economic impact. Um, quarter four of 2019, seeing pretty flat growth in the UK economy. Second, we know that there will be a regulatory impact, um, but it's now clear that uh, we're certainly uncertain about what that regulatory impact may be um, on leaving the European Union. And we don't know what regulatory freedoms may come um, as a result of current negotiations, nor what benefit uh, such regulatory freedoms may bring. So the uncertainty continues, um, although we know that there is going to be uh, definite change. Just mentioning GDPR, the future of data sharing, uh, we think is as important, if not more so than regulation. And finally, the impact on trade. Uh, the relationship of financial centers with trade is very close. Um, and the question facing us is, is um, how the relationship between future trade, um, given our new place in the world, and the effect on our financial systems um, will affect London as a centre. Mike, that's a, that's been a fascinating presentation and a good skip and a hop through a very uh, dense set of materials that are online. Just a quick question for you, though. Could you help our audience uh, and explain how strong is that uh, correlation between trade and financial centre strength as a global centre? Okay. Um, some of the most highly correlated um, measures in the GFCI uh, in terms of the instrumental factors relate to competitiveness. Um, good examples are the Global Competitiveness Index from the World Economic Forum, which looks at a range of factors, including the openness of a country to trade and the ease of conducting trade. Also, the Global Enabling Trade Report. Both of those feature in the top 20 correlated instrumental factors. Uh, within the GFCI and changes in the ability to trade with the UK or the amount of trade or the ease of trade um, will certainly have an impact on those factors. We think uh, also, therefore, on the position of London as a financial centre. I'm going to ask um, Simon Mills uh, for some thoughts on London and the uh, hosting of the COP26 uh, later this year. Thank you, Mike. And uh, so to COP26, the big climate change conference that's scheduled to take place in Glasgow between the 9th and the 19th of November. Um, now, COP26, the 26th meeting of the conference of the parties who were signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992 is important for, for two reasons. Um, 
Firstly, as I talk to you, you should really give yourselves a pat on the back. We're all pioneers because we're the first ever humans on the planet to breathe air with more than 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in it. And secondly, COP26 is where nations are supposed to present their homework to the conference. And this should include their uh, Paris Agreement enhanced commitments to cut greenhouse emissions by 2030, as well as their plans to reach net zero by 2050. So what's the likely outcome of COP26? Well, we may see some announcements on sovereign green bonds. And I suppose the big question is whether the UK is actually going to follow this path. Um, if politicians were serious about sticking to their promises, we might even see the issuance of the first policy performance bonds. But I think that a higher probability scenario, which is actually currently being considered by the ECB, is green quantitative easing, which would have the double benefit of providing a much needed fiscal stimulus to the world economy whilst encouraging green growth. However, given the outcome of the last few COPs, there's also a very high probability that oil producing nations who are currently locked in a vicious struggle over the price of oil are, are just going to walk away wrecking any, any concrete outcomes. So it's all to play for. Will Glasgow be a resounding success or yet another milestone on the road to perdition for the planet? Only time will tell. Simon, thank you. Um, I just wonder what effects do you think um, UK hosting COP26 might have on our reputation as a nation for uh, green finance? Well, I mentioned Paris, which was COP21, which was the last successful COP. And at the time, the French government were very successful in bringing in a range of measures, such as reporting, which really cemented Paris's reputation as a, a centre of excellence in green finance. Whether the UK can do the same is really going to depend on whether there's the political will to grasp this opportunity and, and put green, uh, green finance front and centre. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to invite uh, Michael Nelly to give us some reflections on uh, London and the coronavirus. Well, thank you, Mike. The, uh, what we're trying to achieve today is obviously to get a bit of a discussion going on <clears throat> London and its future. Uh, and I, I just thought I'd make uh, five remarks. Uh, it's impossible to avoid coronavirus. I needn't go into it. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to pick out five elements. I think the first thing is that the reaction to the medical emergency uh, and the health risk uh, will dictate uh, a number of knock-on effects in terms of the economy and trade. Uh, and so I'm not qualified to comment on pandemics, and I'll leave it alone. But the economic impact is very, very real. And I think it's showing up in a number of areas. Uh, most importantly, we've never really had sufficient fat, so to speak, in the system. Uh, nobody has dreamt of trying to have an economy go into lockdown for three, four, five, whatever months. Uh, and I'm not sure that we, on return, wish to build an economy like that. The resilience in such an economy would be enormously high. And this has uh, two effects. One, global supply chains, which have been uh, arguably a little bit brittle, uh, could uh, in the future be uh, put put a lot more fat into them. So this would lead to much more uh, warehousing, lots of reserves, etc. Do we really want that? That's a, that's an interesting question. So if we weather this through with government 
uh, support and direction, uh, people might say, well, this is just a, a one-off. There's little to learn. The second thing about the economic impact is we've never had sufficient credit in the system. Uh, and in financial services, the biggest thing is the role of credit in this modern economy. So will we exit this with people saying there ought to be, every firm ought to have a one or a two year buffer to be able to withstand complete shutdown? Or will people say, let's go back to normal? Uh, however, I do think uh, in the trade area, there, there is going to be a, a definite impact. And this has potentially got an upside for financial services, longer term, more secure trade deals uh, with more buffering uh, mean effectively uh, more contracting. And so, Mike, your, your point there about the relationship between uh, trade and financial sector strength is, is quite important. Um, and this leads me on to uh, two fairly obvious points. Uh, we brought out a fun video today, which I would recommend to everybody. Uh, perhaps, Mike, you might want to post it. Uh, it was about chair miles. Uh, we're seeing the potential tipping point of home working as people who've never used it before uh, start to do this. Could this really affect a financial center? Well, possibly. I imagine that people uh, find that working from home is the new normal. One would then anticipate a drop in commercial property prices and perhaps the importance of commercial property in centers such as London, Singapore, Hong Kong, New York, Shanghai. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one might see a rise in residential values as people say, well, if I'm going to be working from home more frequently, that extra bit of home office space and a little bit uh, more luxurious surroundings are just that much more essential. So potentially demand there. And finally, I think we've got to ask ourselves about the role of finance. Uh, at the moment, governments seem to be uh, taking this on without much recourse to financial services other than payment systems. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, where the government has uh, provided some sorts of guarantees, two sectors, banking and insurance, so far haven't, haven't shown. Uh, in the banking sector, we've seen the banks requiring guarantees, uh, personal guarantees on mortgages and things from uh, small business people when the loans themselves are already uh, largely guaranteed by the government. So this is seen as being somewhat rapacious. And in the insurance sector, we've seen some fairly high profile uh, insurers uh, ostensibly reneging on clauses in uh, their business interruption insurance contracts. And I myself have personally seen an insurer do that to a small business friend of mine, uh, being a little bit up to date on wordings and with the assistance of a friend uh, who knows much more than I do about wordings, uh, it turns out that he is almost certainly right and the insurer is wrong. But it's interesting to see what their knee-jerk response is. So I think that London post-coronavirus could potentially be a very different place in residential commercial property and financial services uh, might be uh, seen as something that is not part of the solution, it's actually become part of the problem. And that long term is not good news for financial services anywhere. Thank you. Um, Michael, one thing that strikes me is if home working really takes off and becomes a lot more prevalent, do you think it's going to have an impact on the importance of clustering as a, a driving factor in the competitiveness of, of financial centers? Well, Simon, that's that's an excellent question, and it's been a question that we've been asking ourselves for over 30 years. Uh, I, I could point you to Economist articles from 25, 30 years ago saying, for example, uh, 
that obviously we'll all be trading from mountaintops in Switzerland or uh, from beaches in the Caribbean and that we don't really need to physically meet. Um, I just think this has never been put to the test. And a lot of people will go back and forth on this, myself included, but genuine social change does occur. Uh, uh, men's dress codes, uh, the way in which uh, people interact with others, the role of women. So we've seen all of this in our lifetime. And absolutely nothing prevents us saying that we can do all of this online. Uh, we have been saying it, we just haven't been doing it. And I've been in meetings recently where people my age have been going, oh my gosh, uh, this this teleconferencing stuff works. And why doesn't it do this? Oh, well, if you press this button, it does. Oh, wow, it does. Uh, it's all functioning. Uh, and you do have to wonder what magazines they've been reading on the flights for the last 20 years, which have extolled the virtues of uh, teleconferencing that they somehow seem to have missed and not played with. But nevertheless, they are playing with it now. And I think this could genuinely uh, change uh, people's views. Uh, and if that happens, Simon, then I think clustering is going to become a, a virtual issue and not a physical issue. Uh, but there are uh, there are clustering effects online as well. You know, what networks do you belong to? How do you get into them? Uh, what are broadcast networks? What are actual interchange networks? So uh, I don't think this is necessarily uh, going to be a brave new world. It will be like all technology. It'll be a two-edged sword and cut both ways. I'm minded of uh, something that Dame Judith Mayhew, the former chairman of the, the City of London, once said, which was that it's really important in in business for people to be able to smell the fear, whether that's over a you know a cup of coffee or a or a lunch. So yeah, we'll have to see how things uh, how things pan out. Very true. Well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, we do have um, a little bit of time for questions. Uh, we have a couple of questions already posted. Um, if you have other questions, please do use the uh, dashboard at the side of the screen. Uh, to, to pose the questions. Uh, but first of all, we have a question um, suggesting that surely climate change issues will benefit from the fragmentation of globalization and the de decrease in global travel, certainly leisure travel, as the world emerges um, from the uh, current coronavirus uh, crisis. Uh, Simon, have you given any thought to what the effect might be of um, our current global position on uh, climate change issues? Well, to tell the truth, we've been here before. Back in, uh, you know, 2008 with the financial crisis, people were saying, oh, this could have a, a huge um, effect on the global economy. It could drive us down a low carbon path and and it didn't happen. Um, I don't know. I, I think that one of the, the most interesting uh, opportunities that that might be coming forward is is the whole issue of green quantitative easing. The world is is going to be in need of a of of a shot in the arm. And if green quantitative easing is trialled, particularly in Europe, um, I think we may see a a, a green renaissance. Um, just to remind you, quantitative easing is the the purchasing of of, of, uh, of of bonds by the government to, to help businesses invest. If governments focus on on green bonds, then you're going to see a real boost to environmentally friendly development. So we'll we'll just have to see how things pan out. And as I said, it's all to play for uh, at COP26. Thank you. I, I, I agree with you that. Um, uh, We've seen uh, 
projections that things are going to improve uh, from all sorts of reasons. I think it's going to be concerted effort. Um, moving on to uh, another question. Um, I've got the question to say in the past, HMRC have rated part of domestic premises for business rates when used for home working and also prorated the tax free portion of the sale of a home. Um, Michael, do you think the, the, the HMRC and government have has even started thinking about what the effect might be of more home working? Uh, Funnily enough, um, yes, they have. Um, and, and in the United Kingdom, uh, so has the, the Department uh, for Communities and Local Government. Um, they're definitely looking at what's happening in the housing market. We've seen the government uh, push to uh, slow down uh, the rate of uh, sales in the housing market uh, last week. So, yeah, a lot, lot's going on where they're paying attention to this. Now, this specific point, which is an extremely good one on, on, on the rating bit, um, I think points to a deeper issue. Uh, at the moment, the, the government, and quite rightly, I'm not claiming I could do any better, uh, the, the government is having to roll with events. It's realizing where a lot of the problems are in the, the current government system, for example, procurement with various people, the Army, the NHS, various departments all claiming to procure uh, items of medical nature and whatnot. So it's, the government is... Uh, quite rightly, uh, running around at the moment, uh, grasping at things. But it is extremely clear that one of the world's most complicated tax systems is not helping things. Every time you try and make a move, you suddenly come up against another tax issue. Uh, and it would be interesting to see if post-coronavirus, the government looks at much more radical ways of, of uh of handling taxation. So, for example, Boris Johnson in early 2016, uh, when he was mayor of London, uh, supported the publication of a, quite a lengthy report on what a land value tax would mean. So, land value tax would potentially substitute for a whole variety of taxes, such as income tax. Uh, uh, and you might see a situation where we had a much simpler tax system based on land value tax plus potentially a, a VAT or form of VAT consumption tax and throughout quite a few intermediate taxes. This would be extremely good for trade. This would be extremely good for a whole bunch of things. And there are good examples in Hong Kong, which largely followed a land value tax for 30 years. That This is probably the better way to run things. Now, you take that and you then take the climate change point uh, that you and Simon were discussing a moment ago. And you could see that all of this could lead to a much greener Britain and one where homeworking where possible was the norm. And we, we, we found ourselves in a situation where things like this distinction between uh, the domestic and the working part of the premises uh, was, was really of little interest. It was just the question of the value of the land that you were sitting on that you were taxed on. That's great. Um, we're, we're running out of time. We do have a few more questions, however, which I'd like to um, skip through if we can. Uh, first of all, on the future of GDPR and the future of data sharing, the question is whether there's any recommended reading on this or uh, whether indeed Zienna planning on publishing any articles around GDPR and the effects on uh, trade and finance. Uh, Michael, any recommended reading on GDPR issues at the moment? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could claim I'd done that, but no, Mike. Uh, yeah, yeah, there, there is. We've got uh, two reports, uh, one published um, in late 2018, from memory, on permissions. So uh, I'll try and, uh, Mike, I don't know if you can dig that out. That's under our report section and post it. Uh, that, that report was uh, written with uh, Maurice Schenk, and what we were looking at there was uh, how you could structure 
such a permissions market where people had control of their data and were uh, effectively in a position where they could sell use of their data and keep their own confidentiality all in compliance with uh, GDPR. Uh, it's not really talked at at length in that piece, but what we are presuming is that we've got three uh, fairly straightforward regimes the uh, Chinese and Indian regime, which implies that the government owns all data, the uh, European regime, which implies that the citizen owns his or her data, and, uh, and the US regime, which is a bit anarchic uh, and somewhat biased towards the large tech companies. We saw that as playing out. Uh, I would argue, and I, I think there's some evidence of this even in China, that consumers given a chance would prefer to have a GDPR style regime, but uh, that's not totally within their gift. Uh, the second uh, question uh, that you raised was on trade. Uh, in fact, I think it was April 2018, we published a, quite a lengthy report on the implications of smart ledgers on global trade. Um, that report was launched at the House of Commons uh, and has attracted a lot of attention, uh, pointing out that a lot of the trade frictions are really self-imposed self uh, bureaucracy and paperwork, uh, which could be simplified uh, using, um, using new technology. It doesn't have to be blockchain or smart ledgers. They just happen to be around and, and topical. Uh, but there is uh, most of the impediments to, to this sort of trade are uh, self-induced. Can I just add to the GDPR uh, point, um, in the London Accord, which is the world's largest collection of, uh, of free to act access ESG research, there's a, a really good report uh, called Poor Digital Rights Performance, Who Pays the Price, which will uh, really give you a, a fundamental briefing of the um, importance of GDPR and, and other privacy uh, regimes. So I'd really recommend having a look at the uh, at the London Accord uh, to see what's there as well. Thanks. What what I'll do? Um, we'll send a follow-up email to people who um, attended today um, and include links to some of those reports in there so you can uh, follow up. Um, really short of time. Just had a question asking about how the uh, Crown Dependencies and Overseas Territories have performed in GFCI. Well, the focus today was on London, but um, the Crown Dependencies have recovered a bit of ground uh, in the GFCI following some quite um, serious falls um, in the in the last edition. Um, I, we don't have time really to go into it here, but um, uh, I, I've made a note of who asked the question and uh, I'll be in touch separately uh, to give you uh, an update on that. Uh, final question was um, just noting that uh, that, you know, light touch doesn't work on green, uh, suggesting we need um, cops, to, to, real cops, to police the many green initiatives. And I think enforcement around uh, the regulation of green financial um, labeling and uh, ESG uh, is quite important uh, in terms of going forward and will require international action. I think the EU work on taxonomies recently as a step forward, and we know that uh, China is working uh, quite closely. Uh, with international organizations to try to ensure that uh, the labeling and measurement of green finance uh, improves over time. Um, that is all we have time for today in terms of questions. Just want to ask uh, James Pitcher uh, from the Financial Services Club to give us a brief um, uh, word on where the FS Club is going um, and just handing over to James now. 
Yes, thanks very much, Mike, and hello, everyone. This is James Pitcher. I manage the FS Club. We've been doing so at ZN for 15 months now. We have co-chairman of Michael Minelli, who you've already heard from, and Chris Skinner, who's a well-known blogger, commentator, and author. The benefits that we bring to our members and audience cover three key areas, which I'm going to touch on very briefly. News, events, and partnership. Firstly, news. You can receive a daily news email, which uh, if you sign up to that via the website or by dropping me an email, will also get you invites to our events, including these webinars, uh, and is a link into Chris Skinner's daily blog. Um, you're also able to share your news on our website as a member and through our monthly newsletter. In the middle of the screen, you'll see a new product offering that we um, brought to bear recently, that of customized news bulletins. This is an AI-generated summary of key parts from relevant articles under 200 different topics. The one that's shown on screen focuses on anti-money laundering. Again, you can sign up for these bulletins via the website, and I encourage you to do so. And then to events. Our unique selling points have typically been the frequency of our events, typically two weekly, and the time spent networking over drinks and canapes, etc., typically. While the networking physically is currently on hold, uh, we have adapted quickly. You can see here a list of the webinars that we have planned. We've increased our frequency of these educational, informative, and sometimes fun uh, remote events. The current program is shown. It's quite extensive, and this is subject to change and probably addition as well. We'll also be introducing special interest groups or SIGs. So watch this space, something that you can subscribe to and join up to separately. And finally, partnerships. We're keen to build our community through partners that we've added who, have, who bear similar interests in terms of building out that community. Uh, and we've also added continuous professional development points currently in partnership with the CISI, but we will also be adding more institutions as we go forward. If anyone like, would like any more details on the FS Club, please drop me a line at james underscore picture at fsclub.co.uk uh, or you can contact me uh, through ZEN. Many thanks. Well, thank you very much um, to our panelists, um, to you for attending, those who ask questions. Um, just say so we are looking forward to the next editions of the Global Financial Index and the GGFI. Um, do take part in our surveys and rate financial centres. Um, be part of the community. Uh, many thanks for your attendance, um, and we hope to see you again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.